Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for insightful, informative, and inspiring conversations with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Marshall Lyles and Linda Homeyer on sand tray therapy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. And today we are going to continue our series on the podcast, Expressive Arts Therapy and Attachment-Based Work. This is actually going to be interview number five in our six interview series. And we have just been getting so much positive feedback about this series. And it's been a real thrill for me to conduct these interviews with some of the most amazing therapists out there. So let me tell you who we're going to be talking to today. We're going to have double the fun that we usually have because I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Linda Holmeyer and Marshall Lyles today. They're going to be discussing their new book, Advanced Sand Tray Therapy, Digging Deeper into Clinical Practice, which is a book I would encourage all of you to check out. So let me tell you a little bit about Linda Holmeyer, although for anyone who practices sand tray therapy, she needs no introduction. Um, she is a play therapist, a sand tray therapist, an author, and uh, also was a professor at Texas State University. She actually wrote Sand Tray Therapy, a practical manual, which is now in its third edition. She wrote that with Daniel Sweeney. And I think a lot of sand tray therapists see that as the Bible of sand tray. It is just one of the first books anybody ever recommends to anybody who's interesting in learning about sand tray therapy. So after 30 years of practice, Dr. Holmeyer is now semi-retired, but she continues to write and play in the clay in Texas. My second guest is Marshall Lyles. And Marshall has been on the podcast before. Marshall is such a beautiful soul. I so admire the work that he is putting out there into the world, not just in sand tray therapy, but also he does training related to EMDR. And he also does training and his own work related to using poetry in therapy. So let me tell you a little bit about him. He's an LPC and an LPC supervisor, an LMFT, RPTS, as is Linda as well, and an Emdria approved consultant. He's been practicing family and play therapy for 20 years. And he has a very strong focus on attachment and trauma. He uh, does also consultation for Santre therapy within a trauma-informed context. So I also know that Marshall, on top of all of that, he truly is an artist. He uh, it does create uh, Santre miniatures. He has a, a business doing that. Um, Marshall's Miniatures, I believe it's called. So that would be something else for everyone to look up. Just please don't move. 
because this interview with these two wonderful folks is going to be coming right up and I'm so excited to share it with you. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. We have Marshall Lyles and Linda Holmeyer joining us here to continue our discussion about the use of sand tray. And um, we want to talk a bit, you know, we, we ended last time talking about implicit memory and explicit memory. And I think so many of us are aware now that putting into words what we're feeling and experiencing it can be difficult. You know, I tell people this is hard for grownups, you know, we're telling kids use your words, you know, and it's like, well, you know, I know a lot of grownups that struggle to, to use their words. And so you know, sand tray therapy gives us an opportunity to use metaphor um, for that which we don't have words for. And let's talk about how it's a nonverbal therapy. You know, that that's something that we say a lot in Theraflay, with me being a Theraflay trainer and very immersed in that world, that it's about uh, we don't need words. We're, we're connecting in a different way. And Theraflay is eye contact, movement, rhythm, all of that. But you're not using words in sand. Let's talk about that, how it can be healing without words. What do you guys have to say about that? I What I would say is if we tap back into the, the knowledge that we've gotten from Bruce Perry, um, and then in the play world, a lot of the writing of Eliana Gill, you know, they each emphasize that it's a that it's about sequencing. You know, they're really understanding developmentally sensitive and trauma aware therapy is properly knowing when to invite in other parts of the self, other parts of the body into the work. Uh, and so that's part of the thing that Santray can remain completely nonverbal. There are some clients that, you know, they, they may um, create in, in silence and then not have no spoken narrative that comes out of it. But many times in Santray, it, it honors the nonverbal and it's rooted in the nonverbal because the images and the sensory are always present. But then we give the options of inviting the words um, in at later stages and bringing the narrative and the narrative can stay completely in the metaphor or it might move into everyday life. And so you're getting the benefit of the nonverbal that stays with you, but also those added integration elements of moments of words when words are within reach, when words would serve us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Linda, what would you add to that? Yeah, I would just say, I think um, having that ability to shift from the implicit memories um, and really being with the client and following the client's ability and titrating their ability to bring it to conscious awareness so that they have a verbal narrative uh, can be very healing and very important for a lot of clients. Um, I agree with Marshall that keeping, you can always, where it's so important to be really skilled at this is to know, just like in 
some forms of really effective talk therapy is when do you pull back, give your client a chance to breathe and mm-hmm. to regulate and collect themselves and then move forward. So um, in window of tolerance lingo, it's working the edges, right? Go, go outside the window of the optimal zone and then come back in and out and back in. And it's becomes this dance of being able to know when to get your client to work and when to pull them back and allow them to know what it's like to be able to be there and still regulate, right? So there's so much that happens and that's why it's so important to be a really well-trained Santray therapist because you have that wonderful opportunity to really manage the nonverbal work with some verbal work and how you interweave and flow that back and forth is, is the art of doing that work. Yeah. Yes. Really beautiful. Now, Marshall, I know that you speaking of window of tolerance, I know that you even do a workshop on window tolerance in the use of sand tray because I took it. Um, so, you know, um, do you, do you want to share it? Since you made up a whole workshop about this concept, I'm thinking maybe there's something more you might want to share about that. Maybe something. Yeah. Maybe something. I, you know, I, I think the more that we learn, from our great minds like Siegel and Ogden and then uh, what Stephen Portis and Deb Dana from the polyvagal lens are bringing in, we're, we're all getting more complex awareness of how to recognize nervous system states in the work, yes. um, how to not have to jump into regular uh, rescue someone from moments of intensity, but also recognizing the difference between um, intensity that's healing versus when it becomes dysregulation that might be toxic or, or problematic. And, and so there's, there's so much opportunity within the relationship to, stay in contact with your own body as therapist, with the client's body. We say in Santry, the creator is always more important than the creation. So, so much of that, uh, that um, information is coming from the client's narrative. You know, if we pull into our AAI language, Karen, that, you know, the way they're telling the story, the fluency will drop clues along the way, the way their hands are interacting when they start to lose motor control or, um, those sorts of things that we, they're just clues waiting um, because of the the nature of movement that's also there that we get a lot of that regulation and part of, of our opportunity in polyvagal language is to start to give benefit for intertwined states mm-hmm. you know not to vilify sympathetic arousal like to let that be welcome but to let the client start realizing then that the state of play is being aroused while still connected, you know, mm-hmm. while still being held, while still safe, and that we can then get into that mode of experimentation um, because the therapist wasn't afraid of the arousal energy and they knew how to harness that to that ventral vagal um, other 
possibility. So it's it gets really nuanced and beautiful and like, like a spontaneous choreography. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, while we're talking about window of tolerance, I do want to bring up um, something that, again, in my own learning and even in looking at you know, can we implement some of this work with children I work with at Chadok? Some of the rooms where people do sand tray therapy have so many things in them. Mm-hmm. And some of the children that many of the children we work with at Chadok, because we have a residential treatment program, so you don't get into residential treatment unless you're highly dysregulated, you know, and that, um, so there would be a real concern that this this space would be really overstimulating too much. The kid would destroy it. Um, how do you guys think about that with use of sand tray? Just briefly, and then Marshall, you can add. I think um, if you see behind me, um, that's a virtual picture, but um, that's a sand tray set with a few additional items on the shelf that I've used for years and years and years. And I'm of the personal opinion that many sand tray therapists um, collect more items because they enjoy the collecting <laughs> than what's really needed for clients to do their work. <laughs> so. I think it's incredibly important when we're working with uh, specific populations, especially those who can easily get overstimulated, that it's our responsibility as therapists to make the space therapeutic. And if having 10,000 figures is not going to work for our client, then we need to change that. So I'm all about that. I'm, I'm starting to do some work and studying on working with clients with dementia and the elderly. Mm -hmm. And again, it's way changing the size and the number of the figures that need to be appropriate for that particular population. So um, yeah, I think it's definitely um, needs a little more um, um, insistence for those of us who teach in the field to really help our therapists to be appropriate with the number of figures that we have. And so Linda, since our listeners, I love the the picture behind you, since our listeners are gonna hear this on audio, I'm gonna say you you have like a moderate size shelf and sand. Would you wanna give a guess of how many figures or, or how many miniatures that you have back there? Probably 200 or 300, Mm -hmm. 200 maybe not, you know, others have, floor to ceiling shelves around three sides of their room. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. overwhelming for me to walk in and look at them and deal with it. So it's, um, yeah, it's amazing how much work can be done with a nicely balanced set of figures from, from the general categories so that there's a variety of words you know, like in play therapy, we say the toys are their words and same thing. The med- So they have things from which to make metaphor. But yeah, I, you don't have to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. 
So how many times have we been overseas together (laughs) that every single tray that was built by the people in the rooms came out of a suitcase of miniatures and And with a room of 30 or 40 people selecting figures from right sand tray collection that Mm -hmm. we took in a suitcase. Exactly. And yeah, you right. witness such powerful things. Yeah. Like it's the variety and it's the intentionality of what you collect right. um, yeah. more than volume. Mm-hmm. So what is, I think it's the phrase I've heard, select rather than collect, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you know, and it's not even just for those who maybe have current instability uh, in the in the new book that Linda and I did we we focused a lot on understanding neurodivergence in general and that it, it might even be someone who's generally well regulated but their way of interacting with the world can become more differently overwhelmed um, than than mine and so it's it's understanding the lived experience of that person's nervous system and what can they tolerate so i worked with a young man a young adult who um, had been just released from inpatient and was diagnosed with schizoaffective this was a few years ago he really wanted to do santray but even though the practice where i am it's the, the setup is like Linda's. It's very reasonable. Um, it was still too much for him. So we had to take the tray into an, a neutral room, and then we would visit the room where the miniatures lived so that he could select them, and then we would take them mm. um, into the other room. And it, we just had to adapt the environment based on what would allow him to settle into the work. And I can relate to what Linda said about feeling overwhelmed yourself. I I went to a training a while back where all the participants, you know, they had trays in the room and all the participants were kind of marched up to the room where the ministers were. And I got in there and like the longer I looked, the more overwhelmed I got. I was just like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And like, I, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was too much. It was, it was too much. Um, So let's, you know, talk a little bit more specifically about attachment in terms of internal working model. Um, And I'm wondering um, about also an I thought when you you said about attachment theory earlier, Marshall, when you were talking, uh, when we were talking about window tolerance, I thought maybe you were going to say this, but you you brought up another really good point, but um, instead, but coherent autobiographical narrative you know, when, when you were talking about the AAI like that is we are looking for coherency like a story that is consistent across the adult attachment interview it hangs together it makes sense and to me it seems like especially when you were talking about a series of trays that somebody's doing that it could be a way that people are working towards uh, from a very disjointed, chaotic, incoherent narrative to a coherent narrative. And I'd just like to hear either of your thoughts about that, because this seems like such a beautiful way to integrate someone's autobiographical narrative. I love it. Linda, you okay if I jump in there? (laughs) 
I love this subject. Um, you know, I'm like you're like, like, oh, we should have just talked about this the whole time. <laughs> I feel my nerd parts just like really starting to dance a bit. Uh, well, you know, and I think attachment literature, as it's evolved um, and research has has um, shown this, that the the quality that really helps to increase coherence and increase security is um, growing in your reflective functioning and your reflective capacity. And I think sometimes as therapists, we forget how complicated reflective functioning is. Being able to monitor multiple states of mind and multiple voices from the past, not knowing that they didn't start as your voice, that is really slippery internal territory when we're trying to work on how that working model emerged. And, and so one of the things that I notice in Santre is it makes reflective functioning concrete. I don't have to hold that part in mind while trying to bring up another part to figure out how they want to inform and influence each other um, because it's it's there held for me in space. And as I move to a different part of the world or I remember a different image from a past tray, that internal dialogue that helps to update that working model um, and increase the reflective functioning just feels more doable. It's more attainable because it's left the abstract in such um, a really felt way. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, have you seen, of course you've seen, but can you tell us about a time, either of you, where you saw trays over time you know, maybe it's a client example from your book. Maybe it's just a composite move from what we would call an attachment, a really incoherent with a lot of unmetabolized emotion to something more coherent in the narrative. Is there anything that comes to mind for either of you? Because I like to maybe see if there's like one kind of case example that we can share to make things practical and putting you on the spot here. Yeah. I, one comes to mind for me, Linda, is that all right? Uh, you know, it, a lot of times uh, I'm working with older kids, teenagers that may, you know, an, an area of frequent work for me is um, adoption. And so they might've had multiple placements and, you know, we don't always even know, all of the story of, of pain that might have started um, at the beginning for them. And, and so there's so many unknowns and uh, there's so much chaos in, in the way that they relate to their own story that that often in the early trades shows up in that way, um, that it looks crowded or sparse. Um, it looks chaotic or excessively rigid. It's mm -hmm. not... It's not one or the other, but there is some presence of inflexibility and um, some where they start to show in the way the world is created that it, it does not feel like it makes sense to them. It's overwhelming them to be with. So I'm picturing one preteen girl right now that her opening trays were, it was one of everything. It was so crowded and it was so complicated and there was never time left to even have the option of narration because there was so much frenetic energy until one day in treatment a story started emerging that was beginning to have a coherent sense of pain 
Um, and so then half of the tray was chaotic, but then there was room for an observable story in the other half. Mm-hmm. And then as she moved over time, then the entire tray became more organized in the way that it was created in the way that her body chose figures in the way that she started unfolding a story about what was happening. So it was both chaotic in body. It was chaotic in story. Um, and it was chaotic in response um, to my reflections. And you just saw that transition. Um, it took weeks, months, right? There was not yes. quick, but the markers right. were there. Mm, yeah. So nice. Beautiful to hear. And I think what's so exciting about that is it's really coming is so implicitly built in the tray. So it's not, you know, we get clients who are very therapy wise, right? right? Right. And they tell us what they think we want to hear. And they can often tell, I, my specialty used to be preschool sexual abuse and play therapy. And even the little ones came with a story because they'd been having to tell a story or they'd been told the story about their abuse. And, but it wasn't internalized at all. Right. And the joy of sand tray is, as Marshall just described, you just see that happening in the tray. And it's not them just giving you some verbal story that they've learned that they can tell you easily. So you just see the truth of it um, unfolding in the in the tray. Wow, that's a, a beautiful way to, to bring us to, to winding down to a close here, Linda. Thank you for that. Um, so for listeners who are like, wow, I want to learn more about this or I want to build on what I already know. Um, Linda, you have your third edition sand tray therapy with, with you and Daniel Sweeney. And that's the most recent version of that. And I would strongly, anybody that has any inkling about exploring this, that's the first book you buy. Don't you, don't you agree, Marshall? Absolutely. That is the first book you buy. It's required (laughs) reading. (laughs) Yes. And then the two of you have just released Advanced Sand Tray Therapy, Digging Deeper into Clinical Practice and could you sh- both of you share a little bit about that book uh, so listeners can hear what they will find there and actually where to find the book? Yeah, I, I would just like to share that, again, I think the strength of Marshall and I writing together has also been the years and years of our training together and teaching together, mm. as well as our individual clinical work. Yeah. So this book actually came out of training that we had done Uh, More than on one occasion, a week-long advanced entree therapy course actually in Istanbul. And so it it just comes out of that interaction of teaching and training and interacting with the participants. So um, we both hope that it's a very, it feels like being with us. It feels like... authentic kind of interaction, not just some kind of an academic treatise. And uh, so it, it comes out of a lot of, there's a lot of joy and a time and energy um, just in that perspective um, in the pages and in the words. 
Thank you for that. Marshall, what would you like to add? It, it was so much fun to even read back after edits of the realizing that it, it's, it was reflective on memories that we've actually had together. And so while we tried to bring in, you know, modern um, research from attachment lens and what's the world of trauma saying now and uh, what's a current view on developmental understanding. Like we, we tried to pull in some of that scholarly information. I'm, I'm with you, Linda, that it, when I read it, it more just reminds me of, you know, the, the moments of us playing in the sand um, in some desert valley in Jordan. And That's true. <laughs> We've done that as well. That's right. <laughs> and so that, I do think it, it I, our hope is that it reads casually, but you also walk away empowered, understanding the, path, the, the, the privilege that we all have in getting to practice this modality and some of the things that we might want to be prepared for um, and when we start trying to use it in advanced ways. Yes, and, and it goes without saying probably, but just to say it again, that this advanced um, book goes even more into <clears throat> attachment-based work and trauma-informed work. And so that's another reason that we definitely wanted to have you guys here to share with our listeners about well it. Yeah, and also resilience, because we also yes. wanted to talk about, you know, yes. what how do we see resilience? And we we uncovered some research that was being done on identifying resilience in the Santre, I believe it was in Africa. And so um, there's definitely an academic component to it. I certainly don't want to sell it short that way, but we wanted it to be very readable and consumable by by folks. So I know you can get it <clears throat> from Amazon, of course, but I know Marshall also sells it. Is yes. Um, Marshall, tell yeah. us tell us about the book and anything else you would like to make people aware of before we end here in terms of trainings each of you are offering. Um, what what what's out there? Everything that Marshall's putting into the world and Linda, you can share too. I I um if you go to my website marshallisles.com, you can see upcoming trainings and. Um, I, I often teach on centering attachment and EMDR in particular. Uh, next year, for the first time, I'm doing an in-depth study into working with dissociation in the Santre. And, and so some of those subjects that are really important to me. Um, but also you can link to the other website that's um, therapistsworkshop.com from, from my website where there are links to buy the book as well as um, um, all, the, all the many figures and things that we, we sell. Because you 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 make you make figures to you. I do, yeah. yeah. I, I like to I like to to get in the clay whenever possible, which is something uh, also I share with Linda. Linda's got her own pottery studio. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> yes. So so Linda, before we close out, is there anywhere you want people to find you, or 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 maybe you don't want people to find you? <laughs> yeah, I mostly I mostly am. Uh, retired in that component, but 
Um, like starting tomorrow, Marshall and I are doing a three-day in-person on Edler and play therapy. So um, I really kind of work now with Marshall, and I let him do all of the hard work administrative stuff. <laughs> all right. Now that I'm kind of retired. so All right. Well, People thank- can find me through Marshall. All right. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to be with us here today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. It's just been such a pleasure to hear from both of you. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.